Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Top 1000 Funds podcast collaboration with the PRI, Sustainability in a Time of Crisis. This series is brought to you with the support of Rubico, and I'm Amanda White, editor of top1000funds.com. The COVID-19 global health and economic crisis has highlighted the need for leadership and capital to be urgently targeted towards the vulnerabilities in the global economy. The issues of sustainability have never been more important, and it's an essential time for investors to be collaborating for better corporate behaviours and economic outcomes. This series explores those issues, as well as the actions that investors can take to ensure the recovery is a sustainable one. I'm joined today by the Chair of CalPERS, Henry Jones. CalPERS is the largest pension fund in the United States, and this is Henry's fourth term on the CalPERS board and his second one-year term as president. Henry, thank you very much for being here. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. Thank you very much, Amanda. And uh, given the circumstances that we're all living in with the COVID-19, I think I'm sheltering in and wearing my mask, watching, washing my hands. So I'm doing fine right now. That's great. So today we're going to talk about the role of the investment community in standing up and working together to shape a future which is just, equal, inclusive, and deeply grounded in fundamental human and civil rights. Henry, at a recent board meeting, you paused before the formal proceedings to acknowledge how the inhumane killing of George Floyd on May 25 is yet another reminder of how far your nation and its institutions still have to go on this. You also said that CalPERS has a moral imperative to confront racism and economic inequality. Today, I'd like to cover how CalPERS is tackling these issues internally and through its investment allocations, but also how the industry can collectively change the status quo processes and behaviours around systemic inequality. Certainly for any investor that is implementing the SDGs in their investment process, this is an important consideration. But first, Henry, I'd like to hear a little bit about your own personal experience. You grew up in the segregated South. Are you able to tell us a little bit about what that was like and what racism looked like and felt like for you? Well, sure. Thank you uh, for that question. Uh, well, first of all, I was uh, uh, born in Galveston, Texas, and, and Galveston, Texas has a spot in our historical uh, annuals because uh, it's significant in that uh, when the President uh, Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation in uh, January 1st, 1863, the slaves did not become aware of that proclamation until June 19th, 1865 in Galveston, Texas. And that was the outgrowth of the Juneteenth that so many African-Americans now celebrate because that was the date that they've actually found out that the slaves had been free. So given that little note from my hometown, I will uh, share with you um, some of the situations that I encountered during growing up in Galveston, Texas. Well, first of all, I actually go back to elementary school because uh, Galveston didn't have a real segregated housing pattern but it was segregated for all services and business, et cetera. So that meant that many times you were living in communities where there were blacks, whites, and uh, Mexican Americans that were living in, in, in a community. And so before I started elementary school, I used to play with white kids and Mexican kids and other black kids. So, but then when I got kindergarten age to enter kindergarten, 
I had to, and by the way, that was an elementary school four blocks from my house. But because I was black, I had to walk 25 blocks to go to kindergarten in an elementary school. So that's my first sense of, you know, why is this different? And it was really based on the color of your skin because Mexicans, so ethnicity wasn't an issue because Mexicans, because of the color of their skin was lighter, they could attend this school four blocks from where I live, but I had to walk uh, those 25 blocks uh, to uh, attend kindergarten in elementary school. And then I also, uh, growing up as a younger boy, noticed that the disparities in services, because I would go with my dad to the market and he would be in line and uh, the teller would call the person behind him, which were two white people in this particular case. And I was complaining. I said, well, wait a minute, we're in line. So my dad would tell me, he said, son, he said, don't complain. This is just the way it is. And so that's another experience I had. And then in high school, I had another experience uh, when I was a senior in high school. We had the, there were two stores. One was Walworth and the other was Crest. I don't know if those, they still exist today. But they were uh, general market stores that had counters where students uh, would go on weekends to get uh, milkshakes and sundaes, ice cream sundaes. And uh, but the blacks couldn't sit at the counter. We had to order and go to the back to pick up our order. And so one day, a number of us said, well, we tired of going to the back. So we sit <laughs> right at the counter and they called the police and a number of us were arrested. And but it did change the policy. About six months later, they banned the restrictions so that the uh, Blacks could also sit at the counter. So those were some of the experiences that early on that I had in terms of where I grew up. And um, uh, that's, uh, you know, uh, to, to this day, I remember those very vividly. So you've gone on to have a very esteemed career, 37 years, nearly 40 years as a, a public employee at the Los Angeles Unified School District, where I love, I love this part of your story. You began as a 19-year-old custodian and finished as the chief financial officer. Um, and as I mentioned, you've, you've been on the CalPERS board for some years and became its first black president. Would you say that you still know what racism feels like in 2020? Uh, yes, I do, uh, because, again, I experienced uh, racism, uh, you know, during my career as a uh, uh, employee of LA Unified School District and also as a uh, uh, elected board member of CalPERS. And I'll talk about LA Unified School District first. The first major uh, obvious one was uh, in 1978. I had taken an exam for deputy budget director and came out number one. And I had my, by that time, I had my degree in finance. And, and so the, it was a white person that came out number three. So the word got out that the superintendent was going to skip over me and appoint the white person who came out number three to the position. So the word got out. And, and, and by the way, that was only plausible or that information only got out because it was a white person that shared it with some stakeholders. And that's how they became aware of it. And uh, so the <clears throat> so the mayor at that time was Bradley, who was a black mayor. So he had a member of his staff and uh, the Urban League and several uh, 
uh, esteemed administrator, um, uh, ministers in the city of uh, Los Angeles got together and demanded that the board reject that and, and, and appoint me because they have, was always told that the reason they didn't have any minorities in high level position because they didn't make the list. And so it was a case where um, I was on that list and number one. So I overcame that obstacle because of support from others. And so that's why I give back so much today because I know that uh, <clears throat> when you ha have a support system around you, you could really be more successful. And I strongly believe that. So that's why I try to reach out and be supported. And also while I was with LA Unified School District, when I was chief financial officer, and this goes to show you, it doesn't matter what your level is, is that Oh, I remember we were uh, getting ready to issue a bond. Uh, and so a bank was our lead underwriter. So we were going to have an all hands meeting uh, at the bank tower there here in, in Los Angeles. And so when I arrived, I told the receptionist, I'm, I'm from Los Angeles Unified School District. So she said, okay, have a seat. So and I looked into between the jar door and it was all white men drinking coffee and chatting. So finally, the lead underwriter of the bank came out and said, Henry, what are you doing out here? We're waiting for you. And I said, well, your receptionist told me to have a seat. So she turned. he turned to her and said, well, why did you have him uh, sit out here? She said, well, you told me to wait for the CFO of LA Unified School District. And he said to her, he is the CEO, CFO. And so we began to walk towards him. I told him lessons learned. Well, one is that you cannot, uh, uh, by the color of the skin, you cannot judge a person's pay grade nor their status. And he needed to make sure that his, uh, his uh, staff learns that uh, mention. So those were two uh, cases that, uh, you know, at LAUSD that, that, that I experienced. And then uh, moving on to CalPERS, I, at CalPERS board meetings, I have not experienced uh, racism but outside of CalPERS, I have. And I'll give you two instances, uh, both while I, since I've been on the board. And one is that uh, I was, uh, we would, I would travel on Sunday evenings up to Sacramento every board uh, month. And many times the flight is delayed. So you have this line of people standing there waiting. And I was one of the people waiting for the plane to land. So I finally landed. And so people were running off because they were trying to find out, well, where do I go to get my connected flights, et cetera. And so being first in line, I could just, as a matter of fact, I was only black around at that time because it was a late flight. And so the this white lady with two young kids got off the plane and she was just hysteric. Well, where do I go? I'm going to miss my connection. I got my kids. And so she said, well, where are you going? And so she said, to Phoenix. And so she said, just a minute. So she went on a little app and she said, okay, you go to gate 78. And about two or three, four minutes later, a black woman got off with two little kids, the same situation. I said, hysterical about missing her flight. And said, well, I, I, I need to know where to go. And she said, well, there's an information counter across the, the hall there. So you can go over there and get information. And so that's the uh, unconscious bias that, that, that gate teller probably didn't even re realize what she had just done 
But me, having been exposed to racism, I saw it, you know, first of hand right away. And the other one that as a, since I've been on the CalPERS board is that, you know, we have these uh, off-site meetings every, uh, we used to have them twice a year, January and, and in July, but uh, now we have one a year. But anyway, we had an off-site, and I think this was back in 2016 in Monterey. And so after the meeting was over, I went to the airport there in Monterey to come back to Los Angeles. And uh, so the plane was running a little late, so I went into the restaurant there and sat at the counter. He had tables in the restaurant, but you could also sit at the counter. There was a few people at the counter and one guy and I think three other people. And so ordered and started to eat. And so the lady, the waitress, started talking about the Super Bowl because it was January and it was the Super Bowl that was coming up in, in, you know, in a couple of weeks and who, who we were rooting for. And so I told her and, and uh, then this guy said, well, I vote for Denver because I can't stand. And he used the N word. It, it, that N word for Newton, the quarterback of the Panthers, because he's so uppity. And then he looked at me and he said, I can't stand any uppity N word again. And I was getting ready to go to him and question his behavior. And the um, waitress intervened and said, Well, no, uh, you know, she then talked to him about that was inappropriate and unnecessary. And that is uh, demeaning and et cetera. But uh, so that's why, you know, since I, I was the chair of the investment committee then, so I had a pretty responsible role in, in uh, actually corporate America. And so those are some incidents that, that occurred that uh, keep reminding you that the, there's work to be done in, in, in this area. Yeah, well, thank you for sharing that, Henry. I mean, you, you're very good-natured about it and, and telling those stories, but I'm sure there's a lot of pain there for you and, and, and for lots of other people. So, you know, I think it's, it, it's certainly worth us talking about today. Yeah. And, by the way, in both in Texas and in Los Angeles, I've been stopped driving while black several times. Matter of fact, one time I was in L.A., was arrested because they said they had a warrant for my arrest, and because I told them, I said, I, you know, they said they're looking for H. Henry M. Jones. I said, I don't have them. They look at my driver's license and they took me on anyway, impounded my car. And finally, after they did the research, found they had the wrong guy. And and then I still had to pay for the tow service fees for, for my car. So it's a, and that's in L.A., you know, so yeah. since I've been here, so. Yeah, wow. So, so let's talk a little bit about about Calpers um, and how you're tackling ha- tackling this. Um, Calpers recently made renewed commitments to diversity and inclusion. Let's talk a little bit about what that looks like. And one really important question around this is: what makes the commitments real? How can you and other funds actually put these commitments into action and and move them from just sort of talking about or making policies about to actually implementing? Well, yes. The um, well, first of all, CalPERS, uh, CalPERS's commitment to diversity and inclusion is uh, reflected in our uh, board's investment beliefs, and we adopted those investment beliefs um, all the way back in 2013. And so they're also outlined in our strategic plan on sustainable investments, which sets out our corporate engagement on board diversity 
and advocacy with regulators and uh, integration into our investment process. And we also have at this time a uh, long-term, long, for a long time, we focused uh, our commitment from the, from the start. So we've been very clear on our uh, focus in this area. As a matter of fact, in August of 2016, the investment committee adopted the CalPERS Sustainable Investment Strategic Plan. And at that time, we identified corporate board diversity and inclusion as one of the six strategic initiatives. And then in July 2017, staff wrote letters to 504 companies in the Russell 3000 asking them to address lack of diversity on their boards. And since then, uh, as of December 31st, 2019, CalPERS has engaged a cumulative 733 companies regarding a lack of diversity on their boards. So staff use gender diversity as a criterion to select companies to engage because of public disclosure or other forms of diversity where it is lacking. And actual company engagement emphasized broadly defined diversity per our governance sustainability principles, such as skill set, age, gender, nationality, race, ethnicity, experience, background, sexual orientation, and historically underrepresented groups. And so CalPERS is engaging companies privately and confidentially on improving corporate board diversity and we don't get any traction from these engagements. If we don't get any traction from these engagements, then we will use the tools available to all share owner, owners uh, to hold companies accountable by using those tools, such as uh, proxy votes, share owner proposals, and proxy so solicitation. And let me, let me uh, Amanda, just share a few statistics with you in, in this area that that I think are meaningful. And, and as of the end of uh, April, uh, last year, 53% of the cumulative companies engaged since 2017 had a diverse director to their boards. Uh, they added a diverse director to their boards. And that was um, 389 out of 733 companies. We also met our three-year KPI for all S&P 500 companies to have at least one female director on their board. Another statistic is during 2019 proxy season, we voted against 314 directors, whether they were board chairs or nominating and governance committee members or long-term tenured uh, directors where diversity engagement did not result in constructive outcomes. And so by comparison, we voted against 468 directors on the same issue in 2018. So when you compare 2018 to 2019, the numbers are declining. So companies are agreeing to add diversity to their boards. And so during the 2019 proxy season, we filed 121 majority vote share on our proposals at non-responding diversity companies, which did have a majority voting for director elections. By the end of the year, 48 of the 121, 121 companies had added a diverse director to their board. And we reached settlement with 67 companies that committed to adopt majority voting. 
And 19 of those proposals went to vote and seven of those passed with greater than 50% support. So uh, all of this work won't change our investment strategy because we've been guided by it from the start. So we believe that companies will diverse with diverse boards and that include backgrounds and gender, ethnicity, racial diversity, all of those issues seem to have these companies perform better. And the simple equation is that when their companies do better, CalPERS investments do better. So we will keep our focus in this area and it's, it's good for society, it's good for our fund, and it's good for our members who rely on us to deliver the uh, pensions they've earned through a career uh, of, of, of public service. I think that is a, a good story, Henry, and CalPERS has, has been a leading uh, investor in terms of engagement and the results that, you, that you've had. And I think a really important story about, um, you know, using your asset size and muscle to actually, um, you know, vote with with your with your values and um and Ann Simpson and others have been instrumental in in making that happen so I think that is a great story but I want to talk a little bit more about you know how we can actually catalyze action on this particular issue um so you know some other stats of the S&P 500 only 1% of CEOs are black and 30% of boards of the S&P 500 companies have no black directors. And as you mentioned, CalPERS is a universal owner and systemic racism is the kind of issue that the theory of universal ownership points to as important to investors and, you, and you've kind of highlighted that. But how can the fund and other investors identify the ways that systemic racism is embedded in investments? And what can investors do to address that specifically? Yes, that's an excellent question. And uh, as a matter of fact, this question is at the forefront uh, for fiduciaries. Uh, mapping racism as a systemic risk uh, requires us to identify the key issues and track these across the portfolio. Right now, we do not have the tools or the data. Uh, we uh, will be making a start on this by commissioning research through the third round of our Sustainable Investment Research Initiative. And then this will give us a review of the work out there, some of which is highly sector-specific or asset class-specific. And this is not unlike where we were in, on the climate change as a systemic risk that just a few years back, you may recall. We had to build a strategy, a data model, and roll out action plans with our partners. And that's yielding results, but we have to be committed, persistent, and, and, and creative. And so addressing racism will require no less from us. Uh, one clear example is employment. Currently, we do not have enough or uh, some basic information which is needed uh, in, in order for us to track issues of racism. And this is why we have argued that the SEC needs to provide a disclosure framework to give us information on human capital management. We've also used our engagement and proxy voting to press for this disclosure at companies by, by company level. Uh, the SEC's own hearing last week on diversity in the asset management industry illustrated that this issue matters across the financial sector. 
So again, in the absence of uh, required reporting, we've used our own diversity surveys or uh, of external managers to track uh, what's happening in this industry. So even on something as basic as diversity on corporate boards or diversity in employment, we have to hand gather information and that's a challenge. And, uh, but however, we also know that racism is not simply an issue of employment practices at the companies we invest in. Uh, racism shows up in lack of ask, access to credit, to capital, and discrimination in employment results in poverty and shows up again in a lack of health care, affordable housing, and, and decent education. And all this leads to a vicious circle of deprivation across the dimensions of race, gender, and inequality. That's uh, intersectionality is critical when we think about how to make progress. There is really no silver bullet. So these resources, these sources of deprivation are embedded in the economies and the social fabric to, of too many places. And so we uh, would like to see that institutions and cultures in these places uh, are still taking steps uh, to alleviate this, these profound impacts on, on, our, on our people and our society. Yeah, thanks, Henry. Uh, I might just turn a little bit more to, towards uh, sort of corporate accountability around, around these issues. You know, the uprising this summer in the U.S. and and the organising work of the movement for Black Lives and others that made it possible um, has focused really on corporate accountability, on racial justice. And so how does CalPERS see itself specifically? I mean, you mentioned a little bit stewardship, but, but how does CalPERS see a role for itself in corporate accountability on racial justice? And what can investors learn from activists, such as the work that Colour of Change has done at Facebook? Yes, that's uh... It, uh, this is, uh, as I indicated, it's, it's both uh, a moral imperative and an economic necessity. As you, op in your opening remarks, you mentioned some of my comments at our uh, board meeting uh, just uh, in June. So, so corporate accountability is vital, and we welcome the uh, attention that is being brought to this issue uh, of business and, and tracking racism and. And, uh, and matter of fact, just uh, uh, two weeks ago, we invited the uh, NACD to address our board so that we could hear about the resources they are providing to members and also to provide a session for our own board by uh, Tony Lopez, which addressed our own, our own role. And the, also at that meeting, we talked about our new chief diversity officer, which uh, she will be coming back to the CalPERS board with proposals to build on our human capital management uh, uh, focused uh, through engagement, advocacy, and uh, integration. And as the board president, I look forward to this and in particular the findings of our new research project uh, under our SIR project uh, uh, three to identify where we can make progress. So this is um, up the most in, in our uh, on our agendas, and we're watching it uh, very very closely. What about the role of your outsource providers? Calpers employs many many service providers and many fund managers. 
should we be calling for more transparency and reporting on these issues with managers? And, you know, are there other things that can be done in asset management innovation and product development? Would you, for example, like to see asset management products that enable investors to steer capital towards companies that are leading in racial inclusion? Yeah. Well, on the, on the first question, absolutely. Right now, people are simply line items uh, of the cost of U.S. reporting. So on your first question, absolutely. And then on the second part of your question, I think that uh, Cal, first of all, CalPERS is a co-founder of the Human Capital Management Coalition, which I mentioned earlier. And the Human Capital Management Coalition has been a petition in the Securities and Exchange Commission regarding better disclosure on human capital management and including the disclosure of federally mandated EO-1 uh, data uh, on race, gender, and ethnicity across various levels in a firm. The challenge, though, around improving diversity, both on boards and in the workforce, is the lack of readily available data, as I keep harping on that. So companies already report the EEO data under federal law, but not required under the securities law to report the same data to investors. So the evidence shows that companies do well on human capital management, also do well on their financial performance. So we had compelling evidence of this presented to us uh, at our at same two weeks ago CalPERS board offsite meeting by Professor Anthony Hesky. So no doubt the market will uh, innovate in this space, but CalPERS strategy is to engage, to advocate, and to continue to integrate into our own investment processes, given that we manage 80% of our portfolio in-house. So Henry, you're also a member of the governing board of the Robert Toygo Foundation, which is a not-for-profit that encourages minorities and women to pursue careers in finance. You've, you've, you have mentioned that, that this issue is more than just hiring practices, but I do want to reflect on that for a minute. What have you learned from that organisation and being associated with that, that fund managers and asset owners listening might be able to deploy in their own organisations in terms of hiring practices and the development of young talent? And, and actually, do we need a whole brand new way of, of doing things? Is, is this somewhere where radical disruption might actually be appropriate? Well, the, uh, uh, well, first of all, yeah, I, I'm very proud uh, to be on the board of uh, Twigo uh, Foundation and, and CalPERS has a long-standing relationship with Twigo uh, as a supporter and employer of choice for many of the Twigo alums over the years. And a matter of fact, last year, Twigo celebrated uh, 30 years of opening doors for some of the most talented and underrepresented minorities working in the investment and finance industry today. And so we view our work as the board of Twigo uh, as an essential move towards financial equity and inclusion, as well as a step to dispel the myth that minority talent does not exist. Uh, Twigo alums work for some of the largest asset managers in private equity, and, and many of them run their own firms. Uh, and uh, if you look at many of the uh, uh, pension fund uh, institutions around the country, you're going to find that uh, 
many of the alums from the Trigo Foundation are actually working the, at the uh, uh, the pension funds throughout the country. And matter of fact, we CalPERS over the years have had like a Trigo Day where the interns are actually invited to have a day at CalPERS to meet with our various directors of various asset classes so that they could have a good understanding of the work at CalPERS so that when they do graduate, we want to hire, you know. And so that's been a very uh, well-received program. But now with the pandemic, we are just like I was uh, to other things been placed on hold till we could uh, assess where we're going with this um, pandemic that we're dealing with right now. I just want to pause for a moment to also let you know what we've been thinking about at Top 1000 funds. And given the changing nature of the global economy, we think it's a good time to question whether these status quo processes and behaviours that investment professionals undertake to tackle the risks and opportunities and meet their fiduciary obligations will actually be sufficient in the future. And this crisis has prompted us to be more explicit in expressing what we stand for and what we've always stood for, really, which is to be a catalyst for reformed fiduciary thinking. So we've actually set uh, uh, developed a set of campaigns that will be driving our conversations for change in the industry. And one of those campaigns is centred around the fact that we believe diversity and inclusion drives better investment outcomes. So top 1,000 funds will campaign to drive diversity in the investment industry. This includes driving gender diversity, but will also campaign so that everyone in the industry, regardless of race, gender or sexual orientation, feels safe to be fully self-expressed and has an equal opportunity to be part of the success that finance can create in wealth creation for millions of people. And we're committing to using our platform to bring these issues to light and we'll be courageous in having these conversations in the industry so we can collectively figure out solutions to some of these huge systemic problems that shape the investment landscape, that shape the economy and the societies in which we live. And certainly, Henry, those conversations are not possible without the generosity of people like you. So thank you very, very much for sharing your own personal stories and, and, and the amazing work that's being done at CalPERS to tackle these issues. Perhaps you wouldn't mind giving us one last parting gift, um, maybe a call to action for everyone listening to this podcast. What is one thing that they can actively do to create change in their work or personal lives when it comes to racial injustice? Well, thank you. Well, first of all, uh, and I want to applaud uh, 1,000 Funds for your campaign to to drive the diversity in the investment industry, uh, because that's we need everyone working uh, together. And your goals uh, in this effort is certainly aligned with our goals at CalPERS and aligned with uh, so many other uh, pension funds all over, not only the country but the world. So I applaud you for for that effort. So uh, the answer to that question specifically, though, is uh, the first step, is, I think, is so important that uh, we acknowledge that through our, throughout our nation's history, Black Americans have been fighting for a just and equitable part of society. And we must acknowledge that systemic racism, which results in disparate access to health care, education, housing, employment opportunities, and other areas in our society does exist. So it's important, I think, for 
for, for, for us to look within and understand that we all have a role to play in fighting for racial equality. We have to seek to work with people who offer new ideas, uh, approaches, and thoughts. We often get comfortable, you know, with people we know and people who look and think like us, and that makes us very comfortable. But however, we, we have to embrace people who are different from us in, in some way. Uh, let's always reach out to help others. And, and I talked about helping others in my very early in my career, et cetera, uh, and, and pass it forward as we stand uh, on the shoulders of the strong people who came before us. So within asset management, we need to change our thought process about this. This change of thought and approach is not hard. It's something that should uh, come organically. And as we think of higher returns and effort are generated where there are less market efficiencies, we have to see that we would generate a better environment by going with the less traditional way of thinking. And we need to seek out managers who offer these new ideas these strategies and this thought leadership that will not only make uh, all of our pension funds uh, more securely funded, but it would also contribute to, a, I think, a greater society. Henry, you've been extremely generous with your time and ideas and stories and certainly given us plenty to think about. Thank you so much for your time. It's an absolute pleasure to talk with you as always. Thank you. Okay, thank you. And it's been my honour and thank you for the invitation.